0: Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my
1: hands start to shake. Can I answer your personal question?
0: Now it is it in time. What if I did the
1: eye? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Derek, welcome to the show. Thank you. I am so excited to have you on. This has been in the works for, for many months. <laughs> and now, of course, the timing is such, and I'm going to read a bio, and a short intro for you for folks in a second. But uh, we're going to come back to the subject of fasting because I'm eight days into a 10-day fast. <laughs> and I was astonished to hear when we were chatting a day or two ago that you have done Something very similar, if not the same. So before we get to that, though, for everybody listening, uh, Derek Sivers, one of my favorite humans, I'm so excited to have him on the phone. And uh, here is a sketch of his background. Originally a professional musician and circus clown, Derek Sivers, you should say hi to him, at Sivers on the Twitter that is S I V E R S created CD baby in 1998, became the largest seller of independent music online with hundred million in sales for 150,000 musicians in 2008, Derek sold CD baby for 22 million, giving the proceeds to a charitable trust for music education. He is, and has been a frequent speaker on the Ted conference circuit with more than 5 million views of his talks. And since 2011, he has published 24 books, including anything you want, which shot to number one, on all of its Amazon categories, it is also one of the few business books, which I think categorically are generally terrible, that (laughs) I have not only read multiple times, but listened to uh, multiple times, uh, the last of which was in Sweden about a month and a half ago before deciding to take my startup vacation, effectively my retirement from startup investing. So Derek, thank you for putting out such good work. First, before we even jump into it. Thanks. Good to finally,
0: well, you know, officially talk to you. We always talk <laughs> off the record, which is kind of funny sometimes because uh, every now and then people ask me about like, hey, do you know what Tim's investing in? Do you know about this? And I think, you know, every time you and I talk, we just, we talk about women. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: so here we are having an
1: official conversation finally. No, we are. And I, I should also underscore for people... Number one, I'm eight days into fasting, so if I sound like an idiot, I'm going to blame it on that. But second is that I consider you a, a reality check for me. And we first met, I want to say it was at a music and tech or tech and music event yeah. in 2007, perhaps, 2008. Yep. And uh, I was familiar with some of your work. You had read the, the four-hour work week and the the prompt for me to call you oftentimes is, is number one, if I just need a sanity check, where for instance, if people around me seem to be asking the question, how should you best grow your company? And then there's an ABC multiple choice list. I don't necessarily go to you to get a D and an E, I go to you because sure. you, you will say, Well, why do you want to grow your company in the first place? <laughs> <Exactly. You laughs> and, ask the wrong questions a lot. Yeah. and secondly, because you 're very good at simplifying and breaking things down, I recall, and I might be getting the, lo- the location wrong, but I-, I seem to place this in Times Square, sitting on the bleachers, talking yeah. about I think it was SQL and databases, yeah. and I was saying that I was extremely uncomfortable. Felt out of my depth when talking to engineers, and you're like, "Oh, it's not that hard." And you sat down and on a single piece, uh, piece of paper sketched out databases and SQL and how it worked. And I just <laughs> admire the not only capability, which is not that common, but the willingness to simplify something. Where I think we live in a world where many people complicate to profit, right? If what you do is right. sim- if, if what you do is simple, then you feel like you're dispensable if that makes sense. and uh, But I want to stop talking and ask you, because I'm not sure I actually ever heard the full story. Originally a professional musician and circus clown. What What is the circus clown story? Okay. There's actually
0: a good lesson inside the story, is that I was 18 years old, and all I wanted in my whole life was to be a professional musician. I mean, ideally a rock star, yeah, but... If I was just making my living doing music, that was the goal. So I'm 18 years old. I'm living in Boston. I'm going to Berklee College of Music. And I'm in this band uh, where the bass player one day in rehearsal says, hey, man, um, my agent just offered me a gig that's like $75 to play at a pig show in Vermont. (laughs) He rolls his eyes and he's like, I'm not going to do it. Do you want the gig? I'm like, fuck, yeah. A paying gig? Oh, my God. Yes. So, uh, I took the gig to go up to Burlington, Vermont. And I think it was like a, you know, $58 round trip bus ticket. (laughs) And I get to this pig show in Vermont. I strap my acoustic guitar on and I walk around a pig show playing music and, uh, did that for like three hours, got on the bus home. And the next day the booking agent called me up and said, uh, so uh, yeah, you did a really good job at the pig show. We got good reports there. Um wondering if you can come play at an art opening in Western Massachusetts. Uh, I'll pay you 75 bucks again. I said, yeah, sure. So same thing. I took the, you know, like a $60 bus out to Western Massachusetts, got 75 bucks for playing at an art opening. And the agent was there and he was impressed. And so he said, hey, look, I've got this circus uh, and the previous musician just quit. So we really need somebody new and I really like what you're doing. So there's a, about three gigs a week. I can pay you 75 bucks a gig. Uh, they're usually Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, do you want the gig? And I said, hell yeah. I'm a professional musician now. This is amazing. So so I said yes to everything, which is going to come up later, you know, with the hell yeah or no thing. But I think it's really smart to switch strategies. But when you're earlier in your career, I think the best strategies, you just say yes to everything, yeah. every <laughs> piddly little gig. You just never know what are the lottery tickets. So this one ended up being... A real lottery ticket for me. Because as soon as I joined the circus, again, I'm 18, I had no stage experience. And uh, with after a few gigs, they said, Hey, so the previous musician used to go out and open the show with this big theme song and get everybody up and dancing. Could you do that? And I said, Yeah, sure. And another gig or two later, they said, Hey, the previous musician used to close the show also with that theme song. Could you do that? I said, Yeah, sure. And then it was, the previous musician used to go out in between every act. And like, you know, get the audience to applaud and thank them and introduce the next act. Do you think you could do that? I said, yeah, sure. And I was really bad at it at first, but I I got good eventually. I became like the ringleader MC of this whole circus. And I was 18 years old. So if you were to go to the circus, it would have looked like my show. And I did that for 10 years from the age of 18 to 28. I did over a thousand shows. And eventually, by the way, you know, got paid more than 75 bucks. Eventually I was getting like 300 bucks a show and it became my full-time living. And I even bought a house with the money I made playing with the circus. And then that led to all kinds of other things. So just so many huge opportunities and 10 years of stage experience came from that one piddly little pig show that I said yes to this little thing. Um, So yeah, the only reason I stopped doing the circus is when CD Baby started taking over my life and I had to start turning down circus gigs. But yeah, that was my life for 10 years.
1: What did you learn that made you better? What were the, the lessons learned that made the biggest difference in your performance as this MC? Good question. It was... Or the biggest mistakes that you made early on that you corrected? Either one was fine. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, it's kind of the same answer is that
0: at first I was too self conscious because I thought it was about me. Like I was going up on stage thinking that the audience was somehow judging me, Derek Sivers, like as if I mattered, you know? So I would get self conscious <laughs> of what they thought of me. And eventually, and I think it took maybe like 10 or 20 gigs with the 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 circus was run by a husband and wife team and uh tarleton was the name of the wife that um she was the one really kind of out on the gigs and leading the circus the uh, the husband was more the booking agent and she's the one that like single-handedly gave me my confidence that i have today like sometimes when People ask me, why am I so confident? It's like, that's because of Tarleton. That's, that's a longer story we could get into. But anyway, Tarleton is the one that she just kept pushing me from backstage. Like, come on, you're, you're up there acting like David Letterman. Like, don't, don't do this whole kind of, uh-huh, yeah, I'm so cool. All right, everybody, here's the next act. Like, I think I was trying to be cool because I thought that people were judging me, right? Mm-hmm. And she said, these people came here for a show. Go give them what they came here for. And so one time I decided to go out there and just be over the top ridiculous. I went on stage and I said, ladies and gentlemen, what you're about to see is one of the most amazing things you can do. You know, we have an elephant that is going to be coming from backstage. And I did this whole like thing in the fast talking voice and, and a real like pizzazz to it. And the audience loved it. And <sighs> I came backstage and she said, there you go. That's what people come to the circus for. So now that I've been on stage, you know, thousands of times, I... That's this really sunk in that you get on stage to give the audience what they came there for, or even things like this. This interview we're doing, this isn't necessarily for you or me. We could just hang up the phone and talk. We don't need to do this, but we're doing this for the listeners. So we're going to give them something that's useful to them. This mm-hmm. isn't about me. This isn't about you. This is about them. Mm-hmm. So that was the biggest lesson learned. Luckily, I learned that early on when I was 18, 19. And-
1: so I know we could come back to it, but I don't want to forget since I have low, low glucose brain, which I think I just made Japanese accidentally, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, so how did she give you your confidence? Or if you prefer to answer it a different way, because I get this question a lot from fans on Twitter, for instance, you know, how did you get so confident? And there are things I can point to from athletic training with uh, specific wrestling coaches and so on. But if if uh, what did that woman do that that helped make you more to help make you more confident or if you were trying to coach somebody who's going to get up and give their first ted talk what would you say to them and i don't know if the answers are similar uh completely different answers so we'll just do the confidence one mm-hmm. i can i can give ted
0: talk advice later if you want is that in my case um <laughs> You got to understand, Tarleton was hot. I was 18. <laughs> she was 33. And even the first time I ever saw her, it, I, I told you she was the the booking agent's wife. So when I took that bus out to Western Massachusetts the first time, I'm sitting in the Worcester Mass bus station. It's nasty. It's the, you know, the dregs of the earth with fluids dripping fr- and uh, it uh it's gross. And I'm sitting there waiting for somebody to pick me up and then like, the door opens to the bus station and it's like that scene in the movie with the backlit woman and, you know, the fan blowing her hair and dream weaver, you know, Mm -hmm. is that moment, this gorgeous woman walks in the bus station. (laughs) I'm like, who is that? And she walks towards me and she says, Derek. (laughs) I was like, so that was Tarleton. (laughs) So it's important to know that Tarleton is hot. She still is. And so, you know, I was 18 and, and uh, I was, dating girls in Boston. And, uh, of course, just everybody broke my heart. And this one girl from Texas just dumped me and I was sad. And at that point, Tarleton and I had been traveling together on the circus for a year or so. So she knew me very well. And, uh, when I told her about, you know, the girl from Texas that dumped me, she just said, Derek, like, you don't understand, like, I've met a lot of guys in my life. A lot of guys. <laughs> she said, you are one of like the smartest, most brilliant, like considerate, like you've got a future, you've got your shit together. You're like, if some woman doesn't see that, that's her problem. Okay, so the first like hundred times she said this, I just thought she was just being nice, you know? I was like, oh, thank you, but I'm still sad. And I think it took about a year where she like just kept telling me this and kept telling me this. And after about a year it kind of sunk in. Like, I just noticed that I had kind of internalized this. Like, yeah. Sorry, and you can't see me right now, but I'm just like, you know, changed my posture. I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty fucking awesome. I'm cool. And like, I I really internalized that. So I just carried that with me ever since, you know. Sometimes there's this beautiful Kurt Vonnegut quote that's uh, just a, a throwaway line in the middle of one of his books that says, you are whatever you pretend to be. That's such a good line. And I took that to heart that I just thought, you know, I'd also been reading Tony Robbins and stuff by then. Actually, she, oh God, Tarleton is that, the same woman. That She's the one that told me to read Tony Robbins, Awaken the Giant Within when I was 19. And that changed my life. So yeah, she's one of like the big three influences on in my life.
1: That's probably so, the exact same age that I read the exact same book, just as a side but, note. That is yeah. the good time to read it. Those <laughs> formative years. So, um,
0: yeah, I I think the you are whatever you pretend to be. I think I just realized somewhere in there that you can just choose to be confident. Um, she helped kind of start it for me, but then I, I kept it up myself. Even when everything's going terribly and I have no reason to
1: be confident, I just decide to be. It seems like most of my f- friends who are what most people would consider successful in various respects can trace their confidence back to either uh or both end a specific woman and a (laughs) a specific coach or mentor Mm, of some type it's all it almost always comes down to one or both of those
0: oh tim you know i've never told you about chemo williams it's a great
1: name and i want to learn more no i don't know anything about
0: this is so up your alley i can't believe i've never told you this okay Thanks for prodding me. I mean, you prompted me with that because you're right. It was a gorgeous woman, Tarleton, and it was a music teacher, Kimo Williams. That he, But see, he changed my life a year or two before I met her. Okay, so imagine this. I'm 17 years old now. I'm living in suburban Chicago, and I decide to go to Berklee College of Music because I want to be a famous musician. And just like two or three months before I'm supposed to go, uh, I see an ad in the local Chicago Tribune for music typesetting. And I'm wondering like how much sheet music I'm going to have to be writing. So I call up this classified ad in the paper and I say, can I ask you some questions about music typesetting? And he said, sure. Well, why do you want to know? And I said, because I'm about to go off to Berkeley College of Music in a couple months. And he said, oh, really? He said, I used to teach at Berkeley College of Music. I said, you did. Um, do you think you can give me some tips? He said, yeah. Um, here's my address. Come to my studio at 9 a.m. Thursday morning. See you then. Uh, so, and he lived like way downtown Chicago in an area I'd never been to. And I'm going to do a little foreshadowing of the story <laughs> Perfect. right now, because uh, when I got married years later uh, to the woman I met when I was sitting in Times Square with you, uh, he was one of only three people I invited to the wedding. Uh, it was... Charlton from the circus, Kimo Williams, my music teacher and my first girlfriend, Camille. Those are my only three guests to my wedding. And Kimo Williams told the story to my family. He said, you know, I tell people all the time. I get all these kids that want, you know, want to be famous. And I say, yep, show up at my studio at 9am. And he said, nobody ever does. Nobody has their shit together to show up when I tell them to. And he said, so I'd honestly forgotten that there was this kid that called from a classified ad
1: um that, that but, was uh, that was his way of saying no <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not way, no, it was, not like, no it was just his hurdle he was like yeah all right kid sure here's a seven foot hurdle let's see how you do exactly
0: so uh he said so you know my doorbell rings some thursday morning at 8 59 a.m and i open the door and there's some long-haired teenager sitting there and you know so now flipping back to uh first person point of view is uh yeah, Kimo Williams is this uh large black man from Hawaii that uh, was a musician that attended Berkeley School of Music and then stayed there to teach for a while. And so what he taught me in four lessons got me to graduate Berkeley College of Music in half the time it would take. And here was his thing. He said, the reason I wanted you to like study with me for a bit. He said, I know you only have like eight weeks before you go to school. He said, I think you can graduate Berkeley school of music in two years instead of four. Um, he said, the standard pace is for chumps. And school- I should get a t-shirt made. That's yes, what it says
1: I know. That. <laughs> this is like totally
0: Tim Ferriss stuff, right? This is like, I can't believe we hadn't talked about this before, that he's the one at the age of like 17, 18, got me into this mentality. He said, we're the standard paces for chumps. That's, the school has to organize its curricula around the lowest common denominator so that um, almost nobody is left out. Mm. So they have to slow down so that everybody can catch up. But he said, you're smarter than that or anybody can be smarter than that if they want to be. So you can go as fast as you want. And here's how. Uh, and so he sat me down at the piano. He said, okay, what do you know about music theory? I said, well, I don't know. Let's find out. And he, you know, he just asked me a few of these music questions. Like, okay, what, how does the major scale go? Da, 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 right? Okay. Show me the tritone. Do you know what a tritone is? Okay. Play me a tritone in the C major scale. I'm like, uh, 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 okay. B and F. He said, okay. Now, uh, how can you take that and. What other chord can you make from BNF? He said, okay, that's called the substitute chord. Now, what is a resolution? We realized, And he was just like, boom, 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 at this kind of pace. He was doing all this music theory stuff with me. It was so intense. And I was like, I had all this adrenaline like a video game. I was like, this is amazing. Okay, keep going. I said, okay, <laughs> and that, and this, and this. And... <laughs> That was like a two-hour lesson that went at that kind of pace. And then he dumped a bunch of homework on me. He said, okay, now go home tonight and take this big book of jazz standards. Find me all the 2-5 substitutions or 2-5 uh, closures. Now substitute chords for that and then come back next Thursday and we'll do this again. So we did that for like four Thursdays in a row. And sure enough, what he taught me in four two-hour sessions was... Basically, like two years of Berkeley College of Music, he compressed it into four lessons. Wow! So, so that when I showed up to my first day of Berkeley, I tested out of the first few years. <laughs> of classes, just thanks to him, and then he even taught me a strategy. It just he offhand mentioned. He said, "You know, I think they might still have a rule in place where uh, those other required courses, you know, that you have to take to graduate." He said. I think you could pretty much just buy the books for those and then contact the department head and just take the final exam to get credit. So I did that too. So I uh when I got there all those required classes, like, you know, uh Bach counterpoint classes, I wasn't so interested in it. So I bought the book, did all the homework, approached the department head, said, Can I take the final exam for this? And he said looked at me weird and said, Okay, took the final exam and got credit without ever having to attend the class. And uh yeah, that's how I graduated Berkeley College of Music in two years. That's incredible. What a
1: gift. I mean, did he, yes. did he ever, aside from just showing up, which is, of course, half the battle, if not more than half the battle, did he ever explain to you why he adopted you in that way? Were you the first person, first student he'd done that for, or is this something he'd done before?
0: I think he, Yeah, he's definitely done it before and since. So as far as I know, last time we spoke, he's still teaching at Columbia College in downtown Chicago in the music department. So I think he's done this for many people since. He's just an amazing guy that is just a great teacher, a very strict teacher. He holds everybody to a really high standard, you know, that kind of that whole like if he said show up at my studio at 9 a.m., if I would have rang the doorbell at 910, he would have said, hmm, I guess you're not serious. And he probably would have turned me away, you know. (laughs) Uh, so he he does that with his students, and um, yeah, so yeah, he's done that from from many people before and since. I think. What would
1: he say to you if you recall when you did something incorrectly? How did he provide feedback?
0: Hmm. Well, I think I think for specific things, he just kind of give me that raised eyebrow look, like, "Oh, really? You yeah. think of that <laughs> is that a?" Set? But you know what? Here is it's kind of the answer to your question is he would question things, um, kind of like you were talking about, you know, calling me when wondering if people are asking the right question. So when I first caught that very first phone call where I, I said, I'm going to go to Berkeley college of music in eight weeks. And he said, really, why do you want to go to Berkeley? And I said, well, because I want to be a famous, successful singer, songwriter, performer. He said, Hmm. He said, well, four years. And, uh, $100,000 Hundred thousand dollars in tuition—it's a lot of money to learn to write a, write a verse in a chorus, <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing. Like, right. oh, really? Is that is that really the reason you're doing
1: this? Like, just he, constantly questioning. That's that's so incredibly, especially at that age. I mean, what an yeah. incredible molding that he provided. Yeah.
0: And ever uh, since then, I mean, you know, you and I have often the same approach to life, like. Looking for the, looking for the shortcuts or just kind of more like looking at the way that most people do things and saying like, you know, that's, you don't have to do it that way. That's very inefficient.
1: You could just do this. So it, he just gave me that approach to life. It's great. And on, on a related note, uh, could you talk about, and we've, we've talked about this a bit, but I never tire of it relaxing for the same result because I think this is such a huge uh, observation that it's It's incredibly important for type A personalities or or at least for me because I have a tendency to almost want to burn the candle at both ends to prove to myself <laughs> that I'm putting forth the maximum effort i'm not I'm leaving as little as possible to chance um, you? With, no. with, with, with certain with certain things you know and <laughs> uh but tell tell everybody about the the bike about the bicycle experience
0: yeah, this was kind of profound um now, granted, I didn't learn this until later, but yeah, I'd been very, very, very type A my whole life. Uh Even before I met Kimu Williams, you know, I mean, age of 14, it's just, my friends called me the robot because they would never see me sleep or eat or <laughs> relax or hang out. I just was like so focused on being the best musician I could be that I would just practice every waking minute. Um If I'd begrudgingly go to a party, you know, I'd bring my guitar with me and I'd be sitting in the... the corner practicing my scales and arpeggios while everybody was hanging out, getting high, you know? So, um, so yeah, I've always been very type A. And so, uh, a friend of mine got me into cycling when I was living in LA and I lived right on the beach in Santa Monica where there's this great bike path in the sand that goes for, I think it's 25 miles in the sand. Uh, 25, no, hold on. Something like that. The exact number doesn't matter, but what I would do is I would go onto the bike path and I would get like head down and push it as hard as I could. I would go uh, all the way to one end of the bike path and back and then back home. And I'd set my little timer when doing this. Huffing and puffing, red face. Yeah, just red face huffing, but like just pushing it as hard as I can. Every single, you know, thrust of the leg, just <clears throat> and, uh, of course, you know, that made me quite fun if somebody was in my way on the bike path. <laughs> I'm sure. That guy's got places to go. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I noticed it was always 43 minutes. I mean, you know, if you know Santa Monica, California, you know the weather is about exactly the same all year round. So um, unless it was a surprisingly windy day, it was always 43 minutes is what it took me to go as fast as I could for that on that bike path. But I noticed that over time I was starting to feel less psyched about going out on the bike path. Cause just mentally, when I would think of it, it would th- feel like pain and hard work.
1: <laughs> it sounds right? like
0: pain and hard work. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it was, but you know, it, I guess at first that was okay. And after a while I just felt like, oh, I don't know, riding the bike, why don't I just hang out? And, um, so then I said, you know, that's no, that's not cool for me to start to associate negative stuff with going on the bike ride. Why don't I just chill for once? Like I'm just going to go on the same bike ride But just, you know, I'm not going to be a complete snail, but I'll go at like half of my normal pace. So yeah, I got on my bike and it was just pleasant. I just went on the same bike ride, but I was more like ah, standing up. And I just noticed that I was, I was looking around more and, and I looked out in the ocean. I noticed there were that day there were these dolphins jumping in the ocean and, and I went down to Marina Del Rey to my turnaround point. And, um, oh no, actually it was when the, the, Breakers at Marina Del Rey. There was a penguin that was flying above me. I was like, no way. I looked up. I was like, hey, a penguin. And <laughs> he shit in my mouth. Was, like, <laughs> 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 was it a penguin or a pelican? Oh sorry, pelican. I was <laughs> yes. A flying penguin above my head. That would be more amazing.
1: Yeah. I was like, what what did you take before your ride? So, <laughs> no, you, had, sorry. so you had a pelican so sorry, pelican yeah. shit in your mouth. What was that's incredible accuracy? Was that from like how far away was it?
0: Uh like twenty feet up. I wow. Mean, I guess I, I don't know if he was accurate or I was, you know. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> So (laughs) the point is, I had such a nice time. It was just purely pleasant. There was no red face. There was no huffing and puffing. I was just cycling. It was nice. And when I got back to my usual stopping place, I looked at my watch and it said 45 minutes. And I was like, no way. How the hell could that have been 45 minutes as compared to my usual 43 It's like, there's no way, but yeah, it was right, 45 minutes. And that was like a profound lesson that I think changed the way I've approached my life ever since. It's because I realized that, I guess, you know, what what percentage of that huffing and puffing then, we could do the math or whatever, uh, what a 93 point something percent of my huffing and puffing and all that red face and all that stress was only for an extra two minutes. It was basically for nothing. I mean, you know, of course, we're not talking about me competing in something where the huffing and puffing might've been worth it. But for life, I think of all of this optimization and getting the maximum dollar out of everything and the maximum out of every second and the maximum out of every minute. And I think I just take this approach now of going like, or you could just take the lesson, take most of that lesson and apply it and be effective and be happy you don't need to stress about any of this stuff. And so honestly, that's been my approach ever since I do things, but I stop before anything gets stressful.
1: Is there any particular way that you remind yourself of that given a lifetime of hard charging? If uh, Mm -hmm. I, I, I would find, I do find that I sometimes lose track of that type of truth, which I think is a truth in almost every aspect of, uh, the endeavors that I partake in, at least are there any particular ways that you remind yourself of that or keep it present for you?
0: I think it's just noticing the pain. I I, luckily I live in a world where I, there's more psychic pain than physical pain, right? So you have to notice the psychic pain that you're feeling, um, of whether it's doing things you don't want to be doing and feeling the, the pain and regret of that or the frustration. Just when you notice this internal, uh, that always, that's my cue that I treat that like physical pain of, of like, what am I doing? What I need to stop doing that thing that hurts. What is that? And it usually means that I'm just pushing too hard or doing things that I don't really want to be doing because I was asking the wrong questions and uh, following the wrong, yeah, following the wrong path, the wrong outcome.
1: Now, rewinding the clock a little bit, uh, 1998. How did CD Baby come to be?
0: (laughs) Um, It was, I was really just selling my own CD on my band's website. I was just, I had a band called Hit Me, and I had this uh, CD that uh, was being played on radio stations across the country. I think I was on 350 college radio stations across America, but the only way to buy it was... To mail a checker or money order to my address. You know, this is before uh, the average person could get any e commerce online because there was no PayPal. I guess I could have put it up on eBay or something, right? But that was like the only way you could sell your CD online as an independent musician. There was just nobody anywhere that would sell it for you. There were a couple big online record stores at the time. There was a uh, musicboulevard.com and CDNow.com. I think Amazon bought them both. But the only way to get into their system was to go through the major labels basically to get a major label record deal and then be in the major label distribution system and then you would appear on cdnow.com right so i thought okay this is this is just a horrible convoluted thing like it should be dead simple to just put your stuff online have a buy now button and ship it to the person that buys it. It shouldn't need to be that complicated. So I did the research and I did the work and I went and got myself a credit card merchant account, which was like a thousand dollars in setup fees. They actually had to send an inspector out to my location to make sure I was a valid business. I think I even had to incorporate to make them happy. I set up a separate bank account, uh, did all of this red tape, a lot of paperwork, thousand dollars in setup fees. Uh, But after three months, I had a credit card merchant account. And then I had to figure out how to make a buy now button on my website. And that was also hard. You know, it was I had to buy a book on CGI bin pearl scripts and copy the example from the book on how to make a buy now button. And but after three months of hard work, I did it. Like my band's website had a buy now button that was like, wow, look at that. (laughs) And so my friends in the New York City music scene, like my fellow musicians, uh, said, whoa, dude, like, do you think you could sell my CD through that thing? I said, you mean on my band's website? They said, yeah, if you don't mind. I said, yeah, sure. Why not? So it was like a favor to my friend Marco. Um, actually, here's a little tidbit of information. Marco, who I just knew. As a musician, Marco Atasari, I knew him as a cool musician in New York City. He was technically the guy that gave me the idea for CD Baby. Later, I found out that he's the son of the prime minister of Finland. Uh, <laughs> and it was like all in the news and I had no idea. But Marco, thank you. He's the one that asked me if I could sell his CD uh, through my band's website. And so I did. And then, you know, I started getting calls like, hey, man, uh, my friend Marco said you could sell my CD through your website. I said, yeah, no problem. Friend of Marco's is a friend of mine. And it just, it grew by request. And yeah, which is, which kind of led me to the, the belief that, you know, when people ask me how to, how do I grow my business? I've got this business idea. Basically, I'm trying to push it onto the world. How do I push my idea into the world? I have no idea. I have no advice for those people because I've only ever worked on the, like the pull method where... People ask me to do things for them, and I say yes. So CD Baby just happened because all of my musician friends were asking me to uh, sell their CD on my band's website. And then I just – eventually there were so many that I just took them off of my band's site and put them onto
1: their own site, and that was CDBaby.com. Of your projects that have done well, what percentage have come from scratching your own itch, a la CD Baby, uh, have, are any of the projects that have gained traction projects that you've thought of sending to a market that didn't include you actually
0: after that first one, I mean, yes, I built a thing to sell my own CD, but, um, actually all of them were scratching other people's itches. <laughs> uh, I, I too, uh, I don't want to get too, I don't want to picture that. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Like, for example, um, shortly after that, um, I already had a UPC barcode thing. The way it used to work with that, um, to get a barcode on your album, you had to pay like, I don't know, $400 to the Universal Code Council in order to get a six-digit prefix, which then let you assign the next five digits, which meant 100,000 products underneath your barcode um, product ID or something like that. So a lot of musicians in the independent music world, wanted to have a UPC barcode for their album that would let them sell it in physical retail stores. And a lot of physical retail stores wouldn't let you sell something unless it had a UPC barcode. But they they didn't want to all have to pay the $400 to get a company account. But I already had a company account. And so I just let a lot of musicians know, like if you ever need a barcode, let me know. I can get one for you. So enough people started taking me up on this that I decided to charge 20 bucks for it because it would take me some time to assign them an ID and then generate the uh, you know EPS or TIFF graphic file to be included in their album artwork. And eventually I automated it. Point is, a um 100,000 barcodes were assigned at $20 each. That was what I charged for the service. It was like $2 million I made for this $400 setup fee for getting a Universal Code Council <laughs> account. So you could say that I was scratching my itch, but really... That it was more, I think of it as the co-op business model. That was
1: free, It was responding to demand instead of trying to create demand. Is that? Yes. I've way? never tried to create demand. I've never
0: done that. I don't know how I've only basically answered the calls for help. Right. And it's usually using mm. this, what I call the co-op business model, which is I've already got something. Other people could use it. I'm happy to share it. I'll just charge a little something to help pay for my time and resources. So that we can all share this resource that I've already got.
1: So I love the, this is a, I think a great example of spotting something small, perhaps looking at a situation that many many other people have been presented with, and spotting something interesting. In this case, a, an opportunity. And I, I want to highlight one other example, which is an email that you wrote, and I'm gonna I'm gonna just read <laughs> a little yes. bit here. So this is, uh, this is from some of your writing. When you make a business, you're making a little world where you control the laws. It doesn't matter how things are done everywhere else in your little world. You can make it like it should be. And I know you're better at reading this stuff, but I'm just going to, just because I have it right in front of me. Uh, when I first built CD baby, every order had an automated email that let the customer know when the CD was actually shipped. And of course, this is Tim speaking. Now, uh, everyone's seen these, they tend to be very plain Jane, very generic, very boring. At first, it was just the normal. This is back to your writing. Your order is shipped today. Please let us know if it doesn't arrive. Thank you for your business. Uh, a few months later, I felt it was very in- incongruent with my mission to help people smile. I knew I could do better, so I took 20 minutes and wrote this goofy little thing. So this is the email that would go out to folks. Your CD has been gently taken from our CD Baby shelves with sterilized contamination free gloves and placed onto a satin pillow. A team of 50 employees inspected your CD and polished it to make sure it was the best possible condition before mailing. Our packing specialist from Japan lit a candle and a hush fell over the crowd as he put your CD into the finest gold line box that money can buy. We all had a wonderful celebration afterwards and the whole party marched down the street to the post office where the entire town of Portland waved Bon Voyage to your package on its way to you in our private CD Baby Jet on this day, Friday, June 6th. I hope that you had a wonderful time shopping at CD Baby. We sure did. Your picture's on our walls. customer of the year. We're all exhausted, but can't wait for you to come back to cdbaby.com. Two exclamation points. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, that 20 minutes, what happened after you put that together? <laughs> well,
0: people would get it and reply back. Like, whoever replies back to An automated shipping email, right? (laughs) Um, Whoever replies back to Amazon saying, wow, guys, thank you so much. But the fact that this little quirky email had so much personality, for one, it let them know, like, there's real people here. And so customers will often reply back saying, you guys are hilarious. That was the weirdest thing ever. That's awesome. But more importantly people started sharing it. They would forward it to all of their friends, like, you guys have to see this. And people who had blogs would post it on their blogs, even just their you know little blog spot or WordPress or whatever blog. Um, so now if you take any of those sentences from that email and you put it into quotation marks and uh, search for it on Google, you'll find literally thousands of blogs have pasted my confirmation email onto their blogs. And I think about this when... Uh, Young entrepreneurs ask me, like, how can I get traction for my idea? How can, I get, how can I get word of mouth and buzz happening? I think you can read business books and, and um, try to do these very serious, you know, furrowed brow analytical approaches to this. Or sometimes it's just these cute little colorful things that you do that set you apart from the rest that make you remarkable, that make people remark on you, about you. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think thousands of people heard about CD baby because of that one little silly email.
1: And I think it, it, a comparable might be Zappos for instance, in their customer yes. service. And what was the anecdote that got spread around? The anecdote was you could call up Zappos for anything. Even if it was unrelated to the product, you could call them up and say, yes, I'm looking at the website, but I'd actually really like a pizza delivered to my house and they would figure out how to do it. (laughs) And on the serious analytical side, you say, oh, my God, that's such a waste of human and capital resources. And can you imagine (laughs) if everybody called to order pizza, which, of course, doesn't scale is never going to happen ever. And uh, they got so. I mean, probably millions of dollars of free publicity just by making that okay. And yeah. like, how long did that take? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what? Not long at all. Uh, Plus, so- you know what, man? It's it's.
0: I don't mean to sound like new agey or whatever, but it's the right thing to do for the world, right? It's like, just put aside the numbers for a bit. It's the right thing to do. It's cool. It makes people happier. It makes the people working there happier, which makes them more into the whole feeling of what they're doing. There's so much more to... A business than just the money, yeah.
1: So, so yeah. tell me about. I remember reading about this, but I think we might have talked about it at one point, which was when people would call CD Baby trying to offer you financing. Yeah, <laughs> how, how did those go?
0: <laughs> well, you, so remember, I started CD Baby at like the end of 97, beginning of 98. So it was the first dot com boom, and so much money was flying around, and everybody was trying to push money at everyone who had a dot com on their domain name or had anything going on. So, of course, me with an actual, like, profitable running business that was really the only game in town, by the way, like, back when I started it if you were a musician that wanted to sell your music online, there was a guy named Derek in New York that could do it for you. And that was it. There were no other businesses that would do it. Some showed up like a year or two later, but at first I had no competition at all. I was it. So yeah, tons of money was uh, shoved my direction. And I I entertained the first few calls and they said, you know, we, we want to invest in your company. I said, well, why? They said, so you can grow it faster. I said, but, I don't want to grow it faster. They said, well, you know, don't you want to scale or get your, get more resources? I said, no, I, I have all the resources I need. Like, I'm good. Like, I was profitable, you know, since the first month in business because my startup costs were uh, $495 is what it cost me to start the business and get it running. It took me six days to build the site and get it up and running. And it was profitable in the second month of business when I sold over uh, $400 of CDs that second month in business. I was profitable ever since. And, uh, I just didn't need the money. And so, yeah, people kept offering and they would, uh, wave these big dreams, uh, in my face thinking it was going to distract them or, uh, entice me, but it just didn't. And I remember, oh, I doubt you remember, uh, mp3.com was a big deal in like 1999 through, uh, 2002 or so. They were like the big daddy of independent streaming music online and downloads. And so, They had all, I think, yeah, they had an IPO. They were public and mp3.com was interested in buying CD Baby and they asked what my price would be. And I said, just not interested in selling. And they said, come on, everybody's got their price. And I said, no, I'm not interested. I'm having fun. They said, come on, even billions of dollars. And I said, what are you, Carl Sagan? No, I don't (laughs) want to sell. Um, There's just nothing in it for me. I'm enjoying what I'm doing. I don't need the money. So after that point, like after the first year or two, I just taught my customer service people, like, if you get any calls from investors or I, um, whatever VC firms or anything, please just tell them no. Like, don't even send them my way. I'm just, we're just not interested. So yeah, that lasted for 10 years. And how did
1: you, uh, how did you develop that relationship with money? Is that something from your parents? Is that, and I'm going to ask a very personal question also, and you can feel free to not answer it, but why did your family why do, why were none of your family members at your wedding? Oh, sorry. They were too. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. When I said, when I said three guests, I meant, yeah. Except okay. My, all right. Uh, Just, sorry about that. All right. No, no, no. Now that I've checked that. Okay. It was in the back of my mind. So, so how did, what, how did you develop this relationship with money where you would say no, like that for 10 years, because that's not what most people would do.
0: Because I had enough I, because I, Ah, actually, you know what? It's it's a bit of a trick reason. Because in the early days, I still considered CD Baby to be a bit of a distraction. Because you remember, I was making my living as a professional musician, which was my original goal and dream. So I was living my dream. Like, I was... I was touring, playing on people's records, producing people's records. Um I played about 500 colleges in the northeast. Uh I was making good money as a professional musician. Like that's what I really wanted to do. And this little CD baby thing was just like a favor I was doing to my for my friends to kind of give back to the community, right? So as it grew, well I didn't want it to grow. Um because yeah, it was taking me away from my music which is my real love, which is making the music, not selling other people's music. So there was this moment when I kind of sadly realized I think I've created a business. Oh, well, I I might as well make it something awesome, meaning um, I want to make it like a utopian dream come true from a musician's point of view. And I spent a night brainstorming, like, what would a real like dream come true from a musician's point of view look like? And I don't know if this will make sense to your listeners, but let's just find out, is that that it was going against everything that was the unfortunate way that the music distribution world worked at the time. So it's like, number one, I want to be paid every week. Number two, I want to know the full name and address of everybody that buys my music. Um, number three, you'll never kick me out for not selling enough, because that was a big problem in the traditional music distribution world, is you were given a window of time. Kind of like, like physical books still are. You have to prove yourself in a window of time. They'll put you into the bookstore. If it doesn't sell well, you're, you're yanked out to make room on the shelf for other stuff. And then number four, no paid placement. Cause it never felt fair that, uh, people could come in and buy up the front page to get, uh, unequal footing, right? So that was like my utopian ideal for how this would work. The reason I'm telling you this is that to, to set the tone that like I wasn't trying to make money. I already had enough money that I had made, you know, gigging and touring and all that stuff. I already had money. So this was a thing I was doing to give back to the community, to to create something that needed to exist kind of artistically or just almost like a community service kind of thing. So, so that was the original DNA of this thing. And, you know, from what we know about DNA, it helps decide how, what things grow into, right? So this was the DNA. So then as it grew, And then it became really profitable. And I was making, I don't know, $100,000 a month doing this thing. And I had all my bills paid off. There was nothing I wanted to buy. So if somebody from California contacted me saying they wanted to give me lots of money to take a big chunk of my business and help turn it, you know, big, big, big. We think you could do an IPO. Uh, I would just sneer like – Oh uh, no! that sounds awful <laughs> i don 't want that life i'm I'm enjoying being fully in control here and doing things for the right reasons, doing things for my musician friends to make them happy, make the customers happy, make the musicians happy like all's good. Um,
1: what was the more, business model in the very beginning?
0: Um, it was only two numbers <laughs> actually there's there's a cute story. Most of us you know, when we start charging money for the first time for our services or our goods. We don't know what to charge, right? So for Marco, my first friend that asked me to do this, and maybe the next 10 or 15 friends that came after, I was charging nothing. I was just doing this as a free favor. This was my community service. And then once I realized, like, total strangers were sending me their music, I thought, all right, I better charge something, but I don't know what to charge. So I was living in Woodstock, New York at the time, and there was a cute, tiny little record store in town that sold consignment CDs on the counter of local musicians. So I walked in there one day, and I said, hey, um, how does it work if I want to sell my CD here? And she said, well, you set the selling price, whatever you want. We just keep a flat $4 per CD sold, and then just come by every week, and we'll pay you. So I went home to my new website that night, and I wrote you set your selling price at whatever you want. We just keep a flat $4 per CD sold and we'll pay you every week. And then I realized that it took about 45 minutes of time for me to set up a new album into the system because I had to, you know, lay the album art on the scanner and Photoshop it and crop it and then fix the the musicians spelling mistakes in their own bio and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that took about 45 minutes of work per album. So it shows you what I was valuing my time at those days that I thought 45 minutes of my time, that's worth about 25 bucks. (laughs) So I'll charge a $25 setup fee to sign up for this thing. And then, ooh, at the last minute, I thought, wait a second. In my mind, 25 and 35, they hold that, they're in the same like brain cell in my head. 25 and 35, those numbers don't feel very different when it comes to cost, you know, like, $10 Ten dollars is different and fifty dollars is different, but twenty five, thirty five, that occupies the same space in the mind. So you know what? I'm gonna make it thirty five. That will let me give anyone a discount anytime they ask. You know, even if somebody's on the phone and upset, I'll say, you know what? let me give you a discount. <laughs> and so I added in that little buffer so I could give people a discount, which they love. So yeah, $35 setup fee, $4 per CD sold. And then Tim, for the next 10 years, that was it. That was my entire <laughs> business model, You know, was was generated in five minutes by walking down to the local record store and asking what they do.
1: I love that story and simplicity because I think there is an infatuation, a fetishizing of pivoting in the tech startup world that has infected many other types of entrepreneurship where people think like, Oh, if I'm not pivoting, I'm not doing something correctly. I should change my business model and my entire customer base every two months. Yes. And I don't view that as a virtue. Yes. There are times to change if something isn't working, but if you don't take the time upfront to think about that and then you're constantly chasing the latest sort of fad or whatever, appears on the cover of uh, TechCrunch or Inc. Magazine or something like that, it's uh, it's a recipe for, for failure for most people. Yes. Right? I mean, there's a huge survivorship bias. I'm just going to rant for a second. There's a huge survivorship bias that I think is important to realize if you're hoping to become an entrepreneur or are an entrepreneur. If you're only reading the cover stories, you're only getting the happy success stories. And you know, for that reason also, I think it's, it's dangerous to idolize people who bet the farm and just happen to pull it off because yeah. those are the people who are going to be written about much like if you open a barons and you look at all of these mutual funds with these spectacular records, well maybe they just got lucky and all the other ones can't afford to buy ads because they're no longer in <laughs> existence. Great. And, uh, so I think it's, it's very similar Now the, uh, the, the one of the essays that you're best known for is uh, "Hell Yeah or No," and th- this has been extremely important for me to consistently reread uh, or listen to. But how did it come about, and, and what is the what is the gist of that?
0: There was a music conference in Australia that I had told my friend I would go with her too. It wasn't even like the conference themselves were really expecting me. It was my, my friend Arielle Hyatt is, uh, one of the best publicists I know. And she was speaking at that conference and asked if I would come with her as like a co-presenter in her mentor session or something. So I had said yes, like six months before. Like, yeah, sure. <laughs> Australia. I'm living in New York city. I'm like, yeah, sure. Um, And then once it came close and it was like time to book the ticket, I was like, I don't really want to go to Australia right now. I'm busy with other stuff. And it was actually my friend, Amber Rubarth, who's a brilliant musician. I was on the phone with her and kind of lamenting about this. And she's the one that pointed out. She said, it sounds like, you know, from where you're at, your decision is not between yes and no. You need to figure out whether you're feeling like, fuck yeah or no and i said yeah that's that's really what it comes down to right cuz the idea is if you're feeling anything less than like oh hell yeah i would love to do that oh my god that would be amazing if you're feeling anything less than that then just say no because most of us say yes to too much stuff. And then we let these little mediocre things fill our lives. And so the problem is when that occasional big, Oh my God, hell yeah. Thing comes along. You don't have enough time to, to give it the attention that you should, because you've said yes to too much other little half ass kind of stuff. Right? So once I started applying this, uh, My life just opened up because it just meant, I just said, no, 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 (laughs) to almost everything. But then when the occasional thing came up that I was really like, you know what? That would be awesome. Then suddenly I had all the time in the world. And, you know, people say this, uh, I'm sure, you know, every time people contact you, every time people contact me, they say, you know, look, I know you must be incredibly busy. And I always think like, no, I'm not. (laughs) <laughs> because because I'm in control of my time. I'm on top of it. Busy, to me, seems to imply, like, out of control. You know, like, oh, my God, I'm so busy. I don't have any time for this shit. That's To me, that sounds like a person who's got no control of their life.
1: Yeah, no, no control and unclear priorities. Yes, exactly. Uh, so the, you asked how
0: it's applying in my life, that still just on the little tiny day-to-day level, even personal things, God, even even people you meet, even, you know, I'm, uh, as I'm dating, (laughs) you have to do the hell yeah or no approach or people ask you to go to events or God, even, you know, even people asking to do a phone call or anything. I think, you know, am I really excited about that? And you know, almost every time the answer is no. So I say no to almost everything. And then yeah, occasionally something will come up, even a little surprise will be dropped in my lap. Like this thing that happened just a Two months ago called the, the now, now, now project, which we don't even really need to talk about. The details don't matter so much, but it was just something that popped up that seemed really interesting and people really wanted. And luckily, because I say no to almost everything, I had the time in my life to make it flourish. So for the last like six weeks, all I did full time, like 12 hours a day was suddenly work on this brand new thing that showed up because I could, you know, so that's to me, the, the lovely, uh, result of taking the hell yeah or no approach to life.
1: Where can people learn more and check out the Now 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 project? And also I should note in advance that for, for folks listening, um we will also include links to anything we've mentioned in the show notes, which will be at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash Derek, all spelled out. Uh, but where can people find more about Now Now Now? It's um
0: if you go to nownownow.com You'll find more about that. It was just in short, I noticed that everybody has uh, an about page on their site and people have a contact page on their site. But usually whenever I'm looking at somebody's personal site, even yours, a big thing I often wonder is like, I wonder what he's up to right now, like working on kind of stuff. And Twitter and Facebook don't answer that. You you can see somebody's stream of stuff, but it just kind of says like, okay, here's what I had for dinner last night. You know, here's something in the news I'm mad about, or here's a cute thing I'm sharing. But it doesn't really tell me, like, how are you? You know, like, if you and I haven't talked for a year, like, what's up? How you how you doing? What you working on? So to me, the whole idea of a now page on your site, it's just a general, like, here's what's up with me now. So uh, I just had one of those on my site. Uh, I had a now page. And then a, a guy named Gregory Brown uh, saw it, liked it. He put one on his site. And all I did was just retweet him when he told me. I said, cool. I wish everybody had a now page. And like within a few hours, there were eight more people had a now page. And then within a month, 550 people had a now page on their website. So I just put together nownownow.com. It's just like kind of a cute collection of people who have a now page on their website. (laughs) But (laughs) anyway, but you know what I mean? The, The point is the details don't matter, but like I'm so glad I had the time to do that. And it was only because I say no to almost everything that I was able to just throw myself into this project and build this new thing on a, on a whim and catch the momentum.
1: So I am reading a section of this, this blog post that I wrote about you and your the best email you ever wrote with the, the Japanese boxing specialist and so on. And one of the paragraphs that I put here, for those people interested, it's just the most successful email I ever wrote, but uh, it's everywhere online. And... It reads, Stranger Still, at its largest, Derek spent roughly four hours on CD Baby every six months. He had systematized everything to run without him. And feel free to correct that if, if it needs to be corrected. Mm-hmm. But what, assuming that's roughly true, mm-hmm. what were some of the most important decisions or realizations that made that possible?
0: Hmm. I love the timing for when... I read four hour work week because it was actually just after I had done this like complete delegation of everything. Um, that it was feeling the pain from everything having to go through me, right? Like it was, it was my business, right? 100% no investors, no nothing. It was me. And so I hired people to help me. It was all me, me, me. So four years into it, it was growing. It was really taking off. I had. I don't know, 20 employees, but still almost everything went through me and it made my day kind of miserable because I'm a real like introverted focused kind of person. I love to just sit down for 12 hours and do one thing without distraction.
1: You're an INTJ Myers-Briggs. Uh-huh. Yep. Yes, Are you? Uh, I'm hundred percent INTJ. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I hated going to
0: the office and being distracted every five minutes with my um, employees asking me questions So that's what I just felt such pain about this, like, I hate this, that I I really literally meant I booked a flight to Kauai, I believe, and I was going to move to Kauai and not give my employees my phone number (laughs) and and literally move. I don't mean like take a vacation. I mean like I am now going to be running or I'm going to be the owner of CD Baby on a little island in Hawaii and you guys just figure out your own damn problems. Cause I was just, I was just having so much psychic pain about this. But then luckily, with lovely coincidence, that night that I booked the flight to Hawaii, um, I watched the movie Vanilla Sky. And in Vanilla Sky, Tom Cruise is like the owner of this big publishing company, but he gets all caught up with these crazy women and, um, gets too overwhelmed with his life and focusing on his own happiness and, Or or unhappiness and all that. And pretty soon his, his company is just wrestled away from him. And I thought, Oh, I don't want that to happen. Like, I don't want to just plug my ears, close my eyes, run away and have my company taken away from me. Um, I need to give this, I need to deal with my problems instead of running from them. So I canceled the trip to Hawaii and went into work the next day and decided to fix this thing. So then, next time somebody asked me a question, I gathered everybody around. I said, Okay, everybody, Tracy just asked me, you know, um, Derek, what do we do when a guy on the phone says he wants a refund? You know, I said, Okay, everybody, stop working. Everybody, gather around. Okay. Tracy asked, What we do if somebody wants a refund? Here's, here's not only what we do, but here's why. Here's my philosophy. Whenever anybody wants a refund, well, we should always give it to them. And I would just explain not just the what to do, but the why it was constantly communicating the philosophy, um, to get to the core of it. And I think you mentioned this in back in four hour work week, there's almost nothing that really has to be you. Like you can almost, uh, get kind of AI and figure out how your brain works, how your decision making process works and just teach it to other people. uh, So that other people can do it. And, um, yeah, that's what I did for every single thing that ever came my way. I would gather everybody around, explain the philosophy behind it, why we do things this way, why I'm about to say what I'm about to say. And now here's what I think we should do. Do you understand why? Now please write it down. But it was also important that I taught it to multiple people, not just one and had them write it down. And then the cool thing is I wasn't doing the hiring anymore at the company. I had taught other people how to do the hiring. So soon my employees were doing the hiring and Then they were teaching new people how to do this thing from the the book. And yeah, so by, let's see, so that really started four years into the company. It was six months of difficult work to really make myself unnecessary. But then my girlfriend at the time decided to go to film school in L.A., so decided to follow her down there. So I moved down to L.A. to be with her, which was a nice symbolic way to let the company know, like, you're on your own. Uh, I'm still the owner. And in fact, so there, there's one little caveat to the thing, uh, where you said that I was working on, uh, CD baby for four hours a a year or whatever
1: you said. Yeah. Four (laughs) hours, six months.
0: Is that that's how much time I spent doing this stuff I didn't want to be doing Mm -hmm. right. The monotony, the bureaucracy stuff that I had reduced down to almost nothing, like a few minutes a week. But what I was doing from 7 a.m. to midnight every single day was programming, like the future of CD Baby. Uh, And that's just the stuff that I loved doing. So it was just, it was about making my life the way I wanted it to be, working on the stuff that I wanted to be working on and not doing the stuff I didn't.
1: Which uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I want to clarify something that is a common misconception related understandably to the title of the four hour work weekend. And, and there's, I, it is the, it's like the single largest blessing and curse that is going to follow me for the rest of my life. But it's a catchy title. Yes. I tested it on Google AdWords. Yes. Had a great conversion rate. That's why it's that instead of something stupid, like lifestyle hustling or the chameleon, blah, blah, blah. I had a bunch of terrible titles that one performed best, but the objective is not to be idle. The objective is to control this non-renewable resource called time so that you can allocate it to the things you most want to be doing. So I don't have, in other words, a trouble with heart. I don't have a problem with hard work as long as it is applied to the right things that are determined with some degree of self-awareness and forethought or planning. Uh, so that's, that's a problem sort of PSA, not for you, Derek, cause you have <laughs> no, re- read the book, but for, but for every like dick who stands up at a public Q and a and goes, well, Tim, I just want to ask, do you work four hours a week? And <laughs> just want to like turn into one of the fantastic four and punch him in the neck from 300 feet away. But for everyone who is, who's uh, maybe inclined to stand up and ask that question, there's the answer. Read the book. Um, and uh, i i bumped into somebody recently you mentioned this book with the i guess frequently asked questions and he was like you should just make cuz i told him i was like you know i try to be really patient i try to spend a lot of time answering people's questions when they have them but it's so clear that most people asking questions have not read the fucking book and they'll be like, can I eat bananas on the slow carb diet? You know, can I eat quinoa after chocolate custard on the slow carb diet? And I'm just like, fuck, if you have to ask, the answer is no. And you clearly didn't read it. And he's like, you should just make, uh, you should just have t-shirts that say, what was it? R T F M. (laughs) Yeah. Read the fuck, read the fucking manual. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, alas I'll, uh, I'll, uh-huh. c- I'll cut that that scree a little short <laughs> the The book itself i want to get uh dig into some specifics with this this manual uh this rule book when you had multiple people write it down, how did you then put together a resource that could be shared with new hires and so on actually i think we we put it on a um put it on a, on a
0: wiki inside, but honestly, most of it was just word-of-mouth kind of legend inside. Like, there were a few internal stories, kind of like the, the Zappos pizza story you just told. The one I always heard was um, Nordstrom's, uh, that there's some legend about guy buys a shirt from Sears it gets like burnt up in a fire and he goes to Nordstrom's to return it and they give him his money back. Like they have like such a liberal return policy that they'll like, even let you return burnt stuff from another store. And <laughs> so a legend like that will travel down and it, it carries the philosophy inside of it. So it's almost like a little story like that can replace 20 pages of an employee handbook. Totally agree. Know? Yeah. Well, it's, so, an aph-
1: it's an aphorism or it's a story. Yeah, Exactly.
0: Um, fable, (laughs) Fable. so there were quite a few of those inside CD baby, especially, uh, for the early people would see the decisions that I had made and the people that I had given all their money back in case anything went wrong, or just, just talking to me in the conversations and getting my philosophies and the early employees at CD baby really got it. And then they would spread it to the new people
1: Uh, on the, so if we flip from book writing to book reading. Uh, you have a page on your site, sivers.org forward slash book. I'll link to it in the show notes. I think it's book. Correct me if the URL is yep, wrong. You, you have mm-hmm. notes on more than 200 books. Mm-hmm. You appear to be a voracious reader. How do you select the books you read and how do you read them?
0: Okay. I select, I really, I let, um, Usually large numbers of people decide, meaning like lots and lots of five-star reviews on Amazon, right? Um, Occasionally, somebody that I really respect and that knows me will tell me, you need to read this book. And even if it's had no reviews on Amazon, I'll just trust them. But for the most part, I tend to go for things that I've seen lots of rave reviews. Then I browse through the description on Amazon. Then I look at the review, actually read the reviews people have said. And it really sounds like something. Okay. This sounds worth my time because I don't read fast and I don't, I don't try to read fast. I like to sit and ponder as I'm reading. So when I'm committing to a book, yeah, that's, that's 20 or 30 hours often. Um, so I don't take it lightly. So yeah, I, I tend to go with lots of Amazon reviews. But then I also give up quickly. So if like chapter three, if by chapter three, I'm not really into it, I just ditch it. Um, and you don't even see those on my side. So I've ditched almost as many as you see there. Um, and I just don't write them up. I just delete them on the Kindle and move on. So, but here's the interesting thing is, well, okay, there's a couple of interesting things. So years ago, actually, it was around 2007 when I first read four-hour work week. i was living in london even though cd baby was still like up and running back in portland oregon uh just because i wanted to experience the world i was living in london at the time and actually you know what's funny i don't know if i ever told you this cute story it was my friend ariel hyatt who i mentioned earlier that told me about you and the four-hour work week. but she told me a little fable about you
1: talk no, about those little oh <laughs>
0: So I can't remember if I ever confirmed this with you. We'll find out. We'll find out right now. (laughs) I think at the time she was going to some kind of like mastermind seminar by one of those like how to be a millionaire kind of guys. Mm -hmm. And apparently, uh, you know, like five or six of those how to be a millionaire kind of guys held some big mastermind thing in Hawaii or something. And you were supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. And you didn't show. And I think like Robert Kiyosaki and people like that were there. And you were supposed to be there. But you didn't show up until the third day where you showed up like covered in mud because you had just on a whim decided to try sleeping in a tree or something like that. Mm-hmm. The, the legend goes. And uh, she told me about the four-hour work week. And, but basically, like in this context of this guy Tim that doesn't give a fuck about convention, and <laughs> it totally sounds like your kind of guy that uh, is doing the things the way that you do it because you don't give a fuck about convention either. And you should read his book. So that was like, yeah, I think it wasn't even available in England at the time. I had to go. Actually, I think the first time I got four hour work week was some like illegal
1: PDF download of it off of BitTorrent kind that, of thing. That's how it happens a lot. So that's that story. I believe is true. So I remember. This particular, uh, this particular event in Hawaii around the time that the book came out or maybe a year afterwards within the year following publication. And I remember going to Hawaii and realizing that I wanted to explore Hawaii as opposed to (laughs) sitting in the conference room. (laughs) So I rented a car and ended up finding a bed and breakfast where this house was built in the trees, this is totally true, uh, but it wasn't available, or it wasn't on the market, and the caretaker ended up being this very attractive woman. And I said, well, is there anything that I can do to be able to sleep in this treehouse? Because I'm really obsessed with this idea, and it looks like Jurassic Park here, with these sort of prehistoric-looking plants. I'll even, and she had some, like, dig uh, a ditch that needed to be dug or something. And so I did that and uh, did all this manual labor. And then I ended up being able to stay in the, in the treehouse, And I think that uh, it was on the Hana. I want to say the Hana highway, if I'm getting that right, just spectacular. I think it was in Maui. And so I did show up to the event late, like a tank top and these <laughs> absurdly now, even to me embarrassing, like European short shorts. I don't know why, <laughs> and uh yeah that's that's a true story, Our so the
0: is true it's so conform- <laughs> yeah, confirmed yeah uh, kind
1: confirmed it's so funny uh I forget what tangent we were on oh, we were talking about we were talking question. about uh how you read books, ah, and- okay,
0: so right around that time i I had been reading books voraciously for years and and people often ask about like mentorship, and did you have any mentors? and I say, well, no, books are my mentors, like books guide almost everything I do, like the stuff I've learned from books, totally guides my life. Um, so I realized though that I would love a book while reading it. And maybe it would still echo with me for a few weeks after. But you know, two years later, I couldn't even remember if I had read it or not. And I thought, that's really a shame. Like, I, I remember at the time, that book meant a lot to me. Why is it now two years later, I've forgotten everything? I said, No, 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 that's not good. So what I started doing in 2007, is every book I read, I would keep a pen in hand and I would underline my favorite sentences, um, circle my favorite paragraphs, write notes in the margins. And then after I was done reading the book, I would put aside like two hours to open up a blank text file and type out everything into a plain text file, um, so that I could Knowing that plain text files are about the most permanent, long-lasting format there can be. They will work on everything. You can read them on phones or new devices we haven't even thought of yet. We'll always be able to read plain text files. So uh, I started doing this for every book I read, and then I would review my notes later. So every time I'm, say, just eating breakfast or something for 10 minutes, I'll pull up one of the notes from a previous book I read and just kind of re-review it, sometimes kind of stop... Take a sentence that means a lot to me right now, open up my diary and write about that for a while. Like really internalize. Basically, I wanted to memorize every lesson I had learned in every one of these books. So that's what I started doing. I even started putting them into the spaced repetition systems and that didn't really work out too well because I wasn't sure how to, you know, formulate that knowledge into a Q and A flashcard to kind of format. You're using so instead, a super
1: memo or something like that. Exactly. The, yeah.
0: So, um,
1: Anki, side note for people, means rote memorization in Japanese. <gasps>
0: really? A-N-K-I.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Sorry to interrupt.
0: So so it wasn't until, say, 2010 that I realized that I just had all of these lovely book notes hidden on my hard drive just for my eyes only. And I thought, you know, why don't I just put them on my website? If the publishers tell me to take them down, I will. But maybe it's of use to people. So, yeah, Sivers.org slash book. What you're seeing is all of my detailed book notes I've taken since 2007.
1: If you were to, and this may be a very difficult question to answer, but to suggest five to start with, Um, or so, I mean, I'm just throwing out a random number, but if you were to suggest some books to start with at Sivers.org forward slash book. (laughs) and this is and by the way this is not a setup for my own book this is oh no 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 (laughs) god wouldn't that be cheesy yeah Uh, first the four hour work week second see rule number one yeah no (laughs) Uh,
0: so uh the i've actually already answered the question for you because uh once i posted them on my site i realized i should give them like a one to 10 rating because I knew this is the, the next question people are going to ask is, well, which ones would you recommend? So, uh, I give every book a one to 10 rating and it's when you go to org slash book, it's already sorted for you with my top recommendations up top. And I think it's, you know what? I hadn't told you this either. Um, back in 2008 or nine, you and I were sitting, uh, down the hill from your house, that local coffee shop. And we were talking about the Charlie Munger book.
1: Um that uh the that big thick black one, I forget the, what it's called. Uh oh, Seeking Wisdom. Seeking Wisdom. From yeah. from Munger to Darwin, or maybe the other way okay. around. By Peter Bevelin.
0: That's it. Yes. Yeah. And
1: um so that's a that's a that. fascinating
0: book. Well I'm glad to have turned you on to it. Oh, uh, yes, I appreciate it. <laughs> so uh so after turning you onto that book, I remember we were talking about like the books that changed our life. And you told me, I think, was it The Magic of Thinking Big? Does yeah, that
1: like- that's right. Okay. Dave, David Schwartz. I have it face out on my shelf in my living room so that I can see it constantly.
0: Okay. So when you told me that The Magic of Thinking Big made such a big difference to you, I think like the next week I picked it up and I read it. And it did nothing for me.
1: Yeah, <laughs> so like, you know, it has to catch you at the right time exactly so, and so that's why and it's also one of those books just sorry i'm getting defensive but it's one of those books that i read in around 2000 maybe a year or two after college when i was in a a shitty you know 100 plus hour a week job where i'm sleeping under my desk and sitting in the fire exit because that's the only place they can they can fit me but yeah it has to find you at the right place at the right time
0: exactly and so There have been people that I tell about how uh, Tony Robbins' Awaken the Giant Within totally changed my life, and I give it to friends, and they go like, eh, it did nothing for me. So you're right. It does matter when you read a book. Um, Even I noticed on a specific subject, I read and loved Stumbling on Happiness. Loved that book. And so I read like two or three more books on the subject of the study of happiness. And by the time I got to the third one – uh, I forget what it's called right now, maybe Happiness Project or something like that. Whatever it, well, the third one I read was, I remember flipping through the book quickly like, yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know, I know, I got it. And so I gave it a really bad rating on my website. And somebody emailed me later going, hey, that book changed my life. I can't believe you get it. gave it a 2 out of 10 rating. And I looked again at my notes and I thought, you know, it's actually probably a really good book. I just read it at the wrong time because I had just read two other books on
1: that subject. And Uh, so yeah, exactly. Just in a different order, it might've been a 10.
0: Exactly. If I would have read that one before stumbling on happiness, which I gave a 10 to, you know, then I would have given that one a 10 and stumbling on
1: happiness might've been like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know this stuff already. Stumbling on happiness is a, is a, is a great book. I (laughs) think that it's for those people who are familiar with the term that I use in the four hour work, we the deferred life plan. So uh, in other words, sort of uh, saving and working in order to retire at some point in the future, maybe 10, 20 years down the road, 30, perhaps to redeem all of that toil for some reward, like sailing around the world in a sailboat <laughs> uh, stumbling. I always forget. Is it stumbling on or upon happiness? On, stumbling on happiness, stumbling on happiness by Daniel Gilbert. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, is a great reality check for that type of, I think extremely risky, prone to failure, uh, deferred life planning. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I got to tell you, so we haven't really talked about this
0: yet, but this is so up your alley or your listeners alley or for the people who are into books mm-hmm. will appreciate this. So a lot of my friends, actually, I don't think any of my friends are as into reading as I am. Okay, a couple are, but most aren't. And so whenever I tell them about some amazing book I've read, <laughs> they the, the gist I get from my friends is like, well, just tell me what to do.
1: <laughs> right. So like, give me the index card,
0: yeah. Yeah, like they don't want to read the book. And and so my friend Jeff is a smart guy. I mean, he's he's a lawyer, he's smart, but he just looks at me with these tired eyes and he just says like, "I'm not going to read the book, dude." <laughs> like, just you can stop pushing it on me. It's just never going to happen. He said, "Just tell me what to do. He said, "I trust you. I like you. You know me. So, tell me what to do." And I realized that if you trust the source, you don't need the arguments. It's so, so much of a book is arguing its point, but often you don't need the argument. If you trust the source, you can just get the point. So after reading, you know, taking detailed notes on 220 books on my site, I realized that distilling wisdom into directives is so valuable, but it's so rarely done. In fact, the only time I can think of that it was done was uh, Michael Pollan with his Three books in a row about food, each one getting shorter and shorter. Um, I think the the first one was uh, was it like Omnivore's Dilemma? Omnivore's Dilemma,
1: yeah, yeah, which was big. So I know that you're the kind of guy that would. It's a great book, but also, I mean, there are like 70 pages on the on corn production in the U.S., (laughs) and most people just drop out. Uh, Even I, even I was like, God, my eyes are glazing over here. But I, (laughs) I know there's some good stuff coming, so I'll I'll slog through it. But yes, a very great book, but a very big book.
0: And then he did one a year later that basically took the best of the stuff from Omnivore's Dilemma and made it into a shorter kind of more uh, pop market, two to three hundred page book, I believe. I forget the name of that one. Might
1: and have been I've, in, in Defense of Food, maybe.
0: That sounds right. Yes. Thank you. Um, so even that one, I remember somebody telling me I should read it and me looking at it going like, oh, I don't know if I really want to read 300 pages about food. Um, but then a year later, he put out a teeny tiny little book called Food Rules. I think that's what it's called. Hmm. And it's like you basically can read the whole thing while just standing in the bookstore. It's He took the energy and the effort to compress everything he's learned into very succinct directives. Uh, and that's what it's you know sentences that tell you what to do do this do that or don't do that uh if if your grandmother wouldn't recognize it as food don't eat it uh and his tagline for that book the popular phrase was eat food uh mostly plants not too much right and i so admired that i got inspired by the effort it takes to distill the blah 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 down into the specific sentences for the people that just aren't going to read that 900-page book, right? Like, probably all of that same information is in the 900-page book, but we just have to realistically admit that most people will never read the 900-page book. So, as I'm reading these 300-page books, 220 of them, very often there will be some, like, brilliant, amazing, important point on, like, page 290. And I feel a little sad that almost nobody's going to read that. Like I wish that these little tiny points were extracted, like without all of this surrounding argument. So especially, okay, I'll admit, this was also sparked by the idea of uh, when I had a kid and I thought like I might not be alive when he's my age or even when he's 19, I might die before he gets older. How could I compress everything I've learned that I think he should know into a real succinct format that he will definitely read. And then, of course, then I thought, and, and, you know, other people will read too. So I got onto this idea of the do this project, which is um, instead of talking around a subject, just giving directives saying, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. Which is kind of funny because it feels very presumptuous, right? Like, who am I to tell others what to do? But then I think, well, who am I not to, right? It's useful. So get over myself. Kind of like you asked about like, you know, me on stage when I was 18. What was the biggest lesson learned? Like this isn't about me. People aren't here about me. They're, they're here for their own gain. Even, you know, that, oh, you asked about my advice to Ted speakers. That's my main advice to Ted speakers. It's like people aren't here to see you and your life story. People come to Ted or watch Ted videos to learn something. So just speak only about what is surprising and skip. Everything else.
1: Um, well, but anyway, if people could talk, if people could start with one of your talks, I know I'm interrupting for a second, but which, which, which talk would you suggest as a starter?
0: My favorite one is the one I think on the TED site, it is called Weird or Just Different. Mm-hmm. I, I call it the Japanese addressing system. That's my
1: <laughs> and I actually know what that means. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, <laughs> so It can be so confusing, but yeah. <laughs>
0: Until somebody explains it to you and then you realize like, oh, it's just a different way of thinking. And, and here, I'll just give you a little teaser. The, the 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 talk is only three minutes long. So you go to ted.com and search for Derek Sivers and it's t- called weird or just different. But the little teaser is is, it blew my mind when I found out That in Japan, they don't – the reason the streets don't have names is because they think of the streets as the empty, unnamed spaces because the blocks are the things that have names. The blocks are the piece of land with houses on them. That's what's important. Whereas in America and most of the world, if if you say what is the name of that block, people will look at you weird like, well, this is Oak Street. This is Third Avenue. What do you mean? And they said, well, what is that block called? He said, that, that doesn't have a name. We don't name our blocks. We name our streets. The blocks are just the, the unnamed spaces in between named streets. So in Japan, it's the opposite. The streets are the empty, unnamed spaces in between named blocks. So I realized that how many things in life actually work just as well the complete opposite way we're used to thinking of them. Both
1: ways are correct. So anyway, that's the idea. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but but the dire- yep. we were talking about directives. Yes. And so- the, the advice you give TED speakers is just how I took us off track. Yeah, that's uh, all right. The- so go ahead. No, no, no I was going to ask, and I'm not trying to cut this short. I'm just so I don't forget to ask. Where can people find the directives? Only in this podcast. (laughs) No, it's true.
0: I haven't done anything with it publicly. I at first I thought I was going to make this into a big keynote speech I was doing at a conference, uh, the World Domination Summit Conference in Portland. I spent four months of full time work from like seven a.m. to midnight for four, you know, seven days a week for four months in a row, just re-reading all two hundred and twenty book notes, extracting uh, or trying to turn all of this advice. Or this knowledge, this wisdom, trying to turn it into directives, because a lot of it almost never is in the directive format already. People talk around a subject; they talk about findings and research, but it, it takes some real effort kind of like the um, the old philosophers. Um, the what was that? You've read the the Stoicism book, uh, the Guide to the Good Life.
1: Yes, Are I have. It? I have okay. that up on my living room wall as well.
0: So. In that book, he says, right in the intro, he said, if you ask a modern, uh, person who calls themselves a philosopher, uh, what should I do with my life? <laughs> he said, get, you know, sit down and get comfortable because they will tell you, well, it depends what you mean by what and it depends what you mean by do. And really, it depends what you mean by life or really, maybe it depends on what you mean by my life. You know, he said, People are, are talking around the issue so much these days, but he said, back in 600 BC, if you would have asked one of these philosophers, what should I do with my life? They would sit down and tell you exactly what to do with your life. Do this, don't do that. Pursue this, don't pursue that. Uh So I was really inspired by that intro too. So the idea was, now how can I go back through all of these amazing books I've read and compress all of this wisdom into specific directives? So it took me Four months of work to come up with the following, like, 18 sentences. Do you want to hear them?
1: I do want to hear them. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm super excited about this. So this was going to be a
0: 35-minute long keynote speech, and it turned out to be a horrible 35-minute long talk, but it's entertaining for about three minutes. So here's here's the three-minute version. Okay. First, I had fun categorizing them. Uh, so... This is the category called how to be useful to others. Ready? I'm ready. Number one, get famous. Do everything in public and for the public. The more people you reach, the more useful you are. The opposite is hiding, which is of no use to anyone. How to be useful to others. Number two, get rich. Money is neutral proof that you're adding value to people's lives. So by getting rich, you're being useful as a side effect. Once rich, spend the money in ways that are even more useful to others. Then, getting rich is double useful. How to be useful to others? Share strong opinions. Strong opinions are very useful to others. Those who are undecided or ambivalent can just adopt your stance. But those who disagree can solidify their stance by arguing against yours. So even if you invent an opinion for the sole sake of argument, boldly sharing a strong opinion is very useful to others. How to be useful to others? be expensive. People given a placebo pill were twice as likely to have their pain disappear when told that that pill was expensive. People who paid more for tickets were more likely to attend the performance. So people who spend more for a product or service value it more and get more use out of it. So be expensive. That's it.
1: <sighs> okay, this is, this is good stuff. So-, so
0: that's how to be useful to others. That's just one category. I've got a few more if you want to hear them later.
1: Yeah, well, let's. What what is your favorite of the remaining categories? Maybe well, we, maybe we could do one more.
0: Okay, good. If you imagine that I've got a few more that are done in that format, like I've got. Uh, this is very stoicism. Like I've got a whole category called "How to Thrive in an Unknowable Future." It's like, prepare for the worst, expect disaster, own as little as possible, choose opportunity, not loyalty, choose Let, the plan. With,
1: let's, hmm. let's do that one, since, I mean, you know I'm a sucker for stoicism. All right. Uh, let's, uh, yeah, let's, 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 let's talk about that one.
0: Okay. So, how to thrive in an unknowable future. Prepare for the worst. Since you have no idea what the future may bring, be open to the best and the worst. But the best case scenario doesn't need your preparation or your attention so mentally and financially just prepare for the worst case instead and like insurance don't obsess on it just prepare and then carry on appreciating the good times how to thrive in an unknowable future expect disaster If you ever watched a VH1 behind the music, you know that like every single success story had that moment where the narrator would come in and say, and then things took a turn for the worse. (laughs) So fully expect that disaster to come to you at any time. You have to completely assume that it is going to happen and make your plans accordingly. Not just money, but health and family and freedom. You have to expect it to all disappear. Besides, you appreciate things more when you know this may be your last time seeing them. Um, How to thrive in an unknowable future? Own as little as possible. Depend on even less. The less you own, the less you're affected by disaster. How to thrive in an unknowable future is choose opportunity, not loyalty. Have no loyalty to location, corporation, or your last public statements. Be an absolute opportunist, doing whatever is best for the future in the current situation, unbound by the past. Have loyalty for only your most important human relationships. How to thrive in an unknowable future? Choose the plan with the most options. The best plan is the one that lets you change your plans. For example, renting a house is actually buying the option to move at any time without losing money in a changing market. And lastly, how to thrive in an unknowable future? Avoid planning. For maximum options, don't plan at all. Since you have no idea how the situation or your mood may change in the future, wait until the last moment to make each decision.
1: Which, which of these have you most concretely implemented in your own life from this Ooh. from this category? Oh, God. Um,
0: I really internalize this category. It's the whole way I see the world. Like, if you look inside my head, you'd think I was a little nuts. And just that I, am just always expecting everything to disappear. Even as I'm like, I step outside, I'm living in New Zealand now and I step outside, it's just gorgeous, surrounded by nature's blue skies. And I, I just inhale and I think like, yep, this is all going to disappear. <laughs> you know, this is all going to go to shit. <laughs> Pollution's going to wreck this all. But I don't think that in like a awful doom and gloom way, you can tell I'm not, you know, Eeyore, but it's just part of my appreciation for everything now and every person I know, and even just my health, even just, God, when I, like, stand up in the morning and I'm like, you know, I just I wake up full of energy, I think, yep, yeah, in another couple decades, uh, that's not going to happen anymore. I really appreciate this. So, um,
1: yeah, it's more of just a deep mindset. It's a practical – I give a, a short five-minute talk on uh... – Called Practical Pessimism. I think it was just, yes. yeah, Stoicism as a Productivity System. I talked about this because I think it's so important that not to be brainwashed into looking at everything with rose colored glasses because it is not always a constructive exercise. Uh, in fact, it can very much be the opposite. And I, the reason, one of the primary reasons that I'm fasting right now, I mean, I'm eight days into a target of 10, I'm getting a little. Little woozy today, but all things mostly manageable is, uh, and I'm also, this is what I haven't mentioned to you, also unshaven, also wearing the same, uh, mostly the same clothing, pants, jacket, etc. Uh, all week long. And mm-hmm. the reason for that is actually, uh, in, in, your, what you just said reminded me a lot of Marcus Aurelius's meditations, uh, which were the Emperor of Rome's wartime journal never in, intended for publication, but it would always start with like, today you are going to meet rude, ungrateful, arrogant people. And th- this is how you're going to contend with it. And it was, it seems very depressing until you realize that he was setting a, creating a mindset that could deal with those worst case scenarios if they presented themselves. And similarly, you know, Seneca a very controversial, stoic, but nonetheless, my, my favorite to read. Uh, and I have a huge like 30 hours of audio coming out related to Seneca shortly. But one of his one of my favorite uh passages from Seneca is one that reads, and I'm gonna masquer this, but it's paraphrased. <clears throat> Set aside some time each month where you subsist on the scantest of fare, the cheap, the roughest of dress etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, et cetera asking yourself mm. all the while, is this the condition I so feared? Mm. And so not only are you mentally preparing yourself by visualizing the worst case scenario, you're actually practicing, you're rehearsing poverty or lack of variation. Or in my case, no food. I mean, I've done this before with, say, rice and beans for five days. And you're like, okay, it costs me $2 a day or less mm. to eat, and I feel fucking fine. And in fact, not having the paradox of choice, having to go to the Thai restaurant and pick from <laughs> 150 items that all have the same six fucking ingredients, that's been really relaxing. And <laughs> so on and so forth. Uh, so that's maybe a, a slight digression, but um, I've always appreciated that about how you have designed your life uh, on the books. So gonna, I want to, I want to give, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Wait, actually before we close out this subject, I have to just give you the one little like punchline
0: ending to these directives mm-hmm. because there were some that didn't fit into this, do this format, do that. And I didn't want to start making lists of what not to do. Cause I liked the idea that every single sentence should be actionable. Right. And so don't do this, don't do that. Didn't feel actionable enough to me. So I had fun, kind of like, you know, our mutual hero, Charlie Munger, mm-hmm. had a speech once that I think he gave at USC about like how to be a failure. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> so I made a category that was called How to Stop Being Rich and Happy. So this is like after you're rich and happy, how to stop being rich and happy. And I thought you'd appreciate this first one <laughs> prioritize lifestyle design. <laughs> you, <laughs> You've made it, so it's all about you now. Make your dreams come true. Shape your surroundings to please your every desire. Make your immediate gratification the most important thing. Uh, how to stop being rich and happy. Chase that comparison moment. You have the old thing. You want the new thing. Yes, do it. Be happy for a week. Ignore the fact that happiness comes only from the moment of comparison between the old and new. Once you've had your new thing for a week and it becomes your new norm, well then just go seek happiness from another new thing. Yeah. You get the idea.
1: No, I I do. And I, I agree with the first point. I mean, people might think that I wouldn't, but been doing a lot of reading and, uh, you know, practice with meditation and so on. But uh, if you read, say Tara Brock or, uh, which has a, she has a fantastic book called radical acceptance, which, which I highly recommend to people who are type A in particular, but, uh, most suffering, actually, Tony Robbins would say this too. I attended my first live event <laughs> mm. a few weeks ago, which was very fascinating and uh, a lot of fun. But uh, that most suffering comes from a focus on me, on the self. Yes. And as soon as you, you know, I received a piece of advice a few, uh, maybe five years ago, from someone. They said, if you're having trouble making yourself happy, just make someone else happy. Yeah. And it sounds so cliched, but it's actually really pragmatic. Yeah. And it makes me think of this something simple that I've been doing that, uh, Gabrielle Reese, Gabby Reese, uh, who was on this podcast with Laird Hamilton, uh, both very famous athletes and they're married. And she said, go first. And all she meant by that was, during your day, be first, like if be the first to look at someone and smile, be the first to mm. look, to walk up to, when you walk up to the barista, ask them how they're doing, be the first to initiate that. And it's such a simple way to put a smile on people's faces, not always, but a good portion of the time. And that can change your own state. Uh, two things on, on books. I'll just, because you're sharing your methods, I'll share a couple that I've yeah. enjoyed. One is on Amazon. I will look at the four star most, uh, four, if it has a sufficient critical mass of say five stars to be worth looking into, uh, if that's how I'm, I'm filtering, then I will look at the most helpful, uh, critical reviews that are four, Ah. that are four and three star. Uh, in addition to that, I will go to, I think it's just kindle.amazon.com and I will read the public highlights. So I'll take, uh, maybe five minutes to look at the most critical three and four star reviews because the, the five star and the one star and two star tend to be worthless in a way because yep. they're so one sided. Yeah. Uh, so look at the, the three and four star most helpful, critical reviews. And then I will look at the Kindle highlights. And that is in effect, seeing the movie trailer. It's like, if you don't like the highlights from the movie trailer, <laughs> mm-hmm. you're definitely not going to like the full feature film especially when it takes 30 hours instead of one and a half. And, uh, the reason I started using a Kindle was specifically so that I could export my notes. Yes. As text files. Yeah. And, uh, the, so that's, that's one of the ways that I filter books these days. Um, but the, the, uh, the question that I always ask that I'd like to ask you and, I think we might have to do a round two sometime because we're probably going to have to hop off in uh, uh, maybe 10 minutes or so. But what, uh, there's so many questions I want to ask you. Uh, What is the book you've given most as a gift?
0: Geek in Japan.
1: Geek Um, in Japan.
0: Geek in Japan by Hector Garcia. Because I'm I'm fascinated with understanding the mindset of a place, right? Like, I would love to really understand the philosophy of Brazil, India, China, Finland, France, Japan, Thailand. Like, to me, each place seems to have its own cultural norms in how it uh, approaches time or long-term versus short-term thinking or what's precious and should be protected or human interactions, relationships, dealing with obstacles, conformity versus rebellion – uh, or just you know, how it approaches uh, people who are unfortunate. So we think of philosophies like existentialism, stoicism, nihilism, but I'd love to study Brazilism, Japanism, Thaiism. You know? I really do think of each country's culture as kind of like a, a working modern applied philosophy. Oh, totally so, is. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So Geek in Japan is written by this Spanish guy who's been living in Japan for 10 years. And while most of the book is kind of like, hey, check out this, look at that. Um, it has a section in the middle that I think explains the Japanese mindset better than anything I'd heard before. And I'd spent months in Japan over the last 20 years. I've gone there five or six times and I used to play guitar for a Japanese pop star and toured the country. But somehow Geek in Japan made me understand Japan more. So I give that to everyone who's going to Japan. But actually, an an even better book I've found since then on describing the mindset of a country is called Au Contraire, Figuring Out the French. It's so deep. It explains the mindset so well. I wish there was a book like this about every country. I highly recommend it. So you listeners out there, if you know of any other books like this that like explain the mindset of a country please email me to let me know.
1: There is a book and I'm going to rely on the readers as well. What is your email address, Derek? If you want to Derek, give it out. I'll, yeah.
0: Derek at Sivers.org.
1: And, uh, in the comments guys. So this, the, all the show notes and everything links to these books will be at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash Derek. Uh, but there is a book out there. I want to say Enrico something is the author, but an Italian, I'm pretty sure it was an Italian effectively writes geek in America, but Mm -hmm. from the standpoint of Italian traveling through the U S, including the heartland. Nice. Uh, So that's, that's one. Cool. Uh, What $100 or less purchase has most positively impacted your life in the last six months or recently?
0: (laughs) Well, I'm such a minimalist that I always avoid letting any new possession into my life. Right. But I took my three-year-old kid to a cafe one morning that had a huge box of toys, like little, little figurines and car, or cars and dolls and monsters. And he was just in the zone for like two or three hours completely engrossed in all these toys. So I was like, yeah, okay, I can't you know, push my minimalism on, on him. He needs toys. So that night I went onto eBay and I found someone selling a huge box of old used toys just like that, you know, figurines and cars and stuff. 20 bucks and uh, endless hours of entertainment since. Best $20 I've spent in a long
1: time. (laughs) That's awesome. Uh, Do you have a favorite documentary or movie?
0: No. um, I really don't watch hardly anything. Um, I don't... I mean, relative to the norm, right? I mean, I watch movies, but more kind of for the artistry, the cinematography, and I listen to music, of course. But, like, I don't watch... TED Talks or documentaries or TV shows. I I also, I don't even read blogs or articles and I I don't listen to podcasts. In fact, I listened to my very first podcast two weeks ago. That was the one with you and Tony Robbins. That was like the first time I'd ever (laughs) listened to a podcast because I just have this lovely optimized life where I just wake up and I write, 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 write all day long. I I have no commute. I'm never really driving anywhere. So I don't have any downtime like that. And if I'm outside, I want to hear the birds and the trees, you know, and if I'm working out, I'll either crank up the hip hop or sometimes just enjoy the total silence except for the hardcore sound of the clanking metal plates, you know, so I really just prefer books as my medium of learning and input
1: of information intake. What do you listen to? What are you listening to now or recently for working out What music?
0: I've started realizing that I don't know my American history of hip hop. That I've always been loosely aware of it, but I recently saw the um, Chris Rock movie Top Five, and the running punchline in that movie is like he goes around like, "What are your top five? and and people kind of name their top five hip hop artists or the ones that fe- they feel were like the, the most important, and there were some in there I realized like, well, I don't, I've actually. I know who these people are. Of course, we've all heard of KRS-One and Rakim, and, but it's like, wait, I don't think I actually know their music well. So I've started giving myself an education in the history of hip hop. And so lately, I've been listening to nothing but hip hop, going back to the very beginning, the wild style movie and the kind of early stuff and giving myself the chronological history of hip hop.
1: It's been fun. Any favorites so far? I would say Eric B. and Rakim are way up at the top for me. Yes!
0: especially once I understood the context, when you hear the before and after, like right now you can take Rakim, for example, uh I mean, sorry, you can take him for granted the way that now if you listen to Jimi Hendrix, you can take what he was doing for granted because people have expanded on that. But if you think of like where what people were doing with guitars before Jimi Hendrix and after, it was just, you know, mind-blowing. And so I think Rakim is like that for hip-hop, that it's, you listen to what was going on before him and then he came along with just such a... Uh, such a, a whole new approach that's changed everybody since
1: if you could have one billboard anywhere with anything on it what would it say
0: well my real answer if i was taking that literally is that i would remove all the billboards in the world and ensure that they were never replaced <laughs> you know like have, have you ever driven through
1: india you know yeah and, it's so sad. Well, even- I haven't driven, but <laughs> oh, right, right, <laughs> on my way to the Calcutta ER where I spent a week, I was God. F- briefly looking out the windows. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, even in these small towns in Kerala, like there's almost no space that is left without advertising. So I really admire those places, like I think Vermont and uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, that ban uh, billboards. But I know that that wasn't really what you were asking. So so my better answer is um, – I think I would make a billboard that would say it won't make you happy and I would place it outside any big shopping mall or car dealer. <laughs> I, so ideally, actually, I think, you know what would be a fun project? Is to buy and train thousands of parrots to say, it won't make you happy. It won't make you happy. And then you let them loose in the shopping malls and superstores around the world. <laughs> That's my life mission.
1: Anybody in? Anybody with me? Let's do it. <laughs> Yeah, we'll make you happy. Uh very stoic, very stoic. Uh which does not mean you can't have joy in your life, but it's I think stumbling on happiness is is a great one for people to peruse. Do you have notes on stumbling on happiness on uh, Yeah, that's on there. All right, great. So we will link to that. Okay, last Effectively, last question. I'll give one or two more, and then I, th- I think we might have to sometime soon talk about a round two if people are interested. So if you'd like to hear more with Derek, please let me know, at T. Ferris on uh, the Twitter, T-F-E-R-R-I-S-S, and you can loop in at Sivers as well. What advice would you give your 30-year-old self? And, and place us, if you would, for where you were at 30 and what you were doing. Hmm. At thirty, well let's see. I had just I had just started CD Baby
0: at thirty. But I think uh <laughs> I think the the biggest advice I would give to my younger self, or more like knowledge learned, like, hey younger self, you should know this now is that women like sex. I didn't know that <laughs> until I was forty. I think I didn't get that. I think through, you know, like teenage movies or whatever, we're kind of taught the opposite. That's like, you know. Men always want sex and women don't. I don't know why the the media portrays it like that. But later I found out that's not true. But I think the the more interesting answer is that my advice to my 30-year-old self would be um, don't be a donkey. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) Well, I meet a lot of 30-year-olds that are trying to pursue many different directions at once. But not making progress in any, right? and then Or or they get frustrated that the world wants them to pick one thing because they want to do them all. And I get a lot of this frustration, like, but I want to do this and that and this and that. Why do I have to choose? I don't know what to choose. But the problem is, if you're thinking short term, then you're acting as if you don't do them all this week, that they won't happen. Mm-hmm. But I think the solution is to think long term, to realize that you can do one of these things for a few years, And then do another one for a few years and then another. So what I mean about don't be a donkey is you've probably heard the fable about, I think it's Buridan's donkey. who It's a a fable about a donkey that is standing halfway in between a pile of hay and a bucket of water. And he just keeps looking left to the hay or right to the water trying to decide hay or water, hay or water. He's unable to decide So he eventually falls over and dies of both hunger and thirst. (laughs) So the point is that a donkey can't think of the future. If he did, he'd clearly realize that he could just go first drink the water and then go eat the hay. Mm -hmm. So my advice to my 30-year-old self is don't be a donkey. That you can do everything you want to do. Mm -hmm. You just need foresight and patience. Right? So say, like, for somebody listening, if you're 30 years old now, and say you have, like, five different things you want to pursue, right? Well, then you can do each one of those for 10 years and you'll have them all done by the time you're 80. You're probably going to live to be 80. So it's it's ridiculous to, I mean, it sounds ridiculous to plan to the age of 80 when you're 30, right? But it's a fact that it's probably coming. So you might as well take advantage of it. It's like, use the future. Then, that way you can fully focus on one direction at a time without feeling you know, conflicted or distracted because you know that you'll get to the others in the future.
1: And I think you could also, uh, just to build on that, I, I agree, I think most people, and this is not something I've thought up on my own, but also underestimate, they overestimate what they can achieve in a day or a week. So they have 20 items on their to-do list, but they right. underestimate what they could achieve in a year or even two years. And yep. uh, you know, the way that, you know, for instance, if you look at, a lot of what I've done, much of which ended up being uh, a result of accidental discoveries, but you had the, the book career, but then you had the angel investing start around 2007, 2008. And I treated that as a two year self <laughs> self-imposed MBA. And it was right. like, okay, I want to try this and really focus on it for two years. And I'm not going to expect to have any financial return, but just as an MBA, I'm going to sink this amount of cost into it, uh, which was identical to Stanford uh, graduate school of business at the time and assume that the network and relationships and lessons I would learn would be worth that two years. And just viewing them as two year experiments, uh, which I did with the TV also, which did not turn out as ideally as I would have liked. Although I'm very proud of, you know, the Tim Ferriss experiment podcast, same thing, right? It wasn't a three year commitment, but it was also not a one day or one week commitment. It was like, okay, I'm going to do this for at least six episodes, maybe it takes me six months and then I'll correct course at that point. But, uh, yeah, you do. I think a lot of 30 year olds feel pressured or younger or older for that matter to pursue many, many things in parallel when if you were just to tweak that slightly (laughs) and make them serial, the results would be much better.
0: Yeah. That's a really hard lesson to learn. We can even say it right now. But it's it's really tough. I even find that now. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. It's a constant challenge. Uh, the uh, five minute journal I find very helpful. I've mentioned this before to people, but so I won't belabor the point. But um, people can check that out if they want to, or the Pomodoro technique also really helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Okay, we are going to wrap this first conversation up for for our dear public. But uh, <laughs> do you have any asks or requests of my audience before we close up? not really
0: i mean honestly the main reason i do interviews like this like public ones instead of you and i just you know sitting on the phone and shitting the shit is that is that i really like the people that i meet through them like the kind of people that would listen two hours into this conversation are my kind of people so i usually just tell people just email me um derrick at sivers.org i read them i kind of enjoy putting aside a little time each day to to read emails and i answer every single one um Because I said hell yeah or no to the rest of my life, so I've got time to do it. (laughs) So yeah, uh, that's it. Just feel free to email me if you have any questions or anything, or just to say hi.
1: Awesome. And uh, for those people who do not want to wait for round two, uh, Derek, you're hilarious. I put out a tweet recently, which was, (laughs) what should I ask? What would you like me to ask at Sivers? Uh, I'm going to be interviewing him soon, and... <laughs> I couldn't ask any of them because you went online and basically answered all of them, uh, on Twitter. So if you search at T. Ferris, uh, two R's, two S's, and at Sivers, you will see, or you could just look at, uh, at my tweet and the various responses and then Derek's responses yeah. to almost all of them. Uh, you can get a, uh, an encore <laughs> performance
0: <laughs> and, uh, and I just had the cha- I had the feeling we probably weren't going to get to all of those questions so you know better to
1: answer them with a tiny punchline oh uh, yeah yeah no <laughs> <letters>. <laughs> no fantastic well uh, Derek as always so much fun to jam we need to spend more time in person soon and uh, thanks so much for taking the time of course thanks all right and everybody listening thank you all for listening redundancy of department redundancy (laughs) and uh the the show notes as always uh you can find for all episodes of fourhourworkweek.com forward slash podcast for this episode specifically at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash derek hey guys this is tim again just a few more things before you take off number one this is five bullet friday